Ezra 4, verse 1. Now, what's going to be on the screen is going to be the New King James Version, because I made a mistake. Um, we are going to be reading from the NIV Version. So if you're up there, you're going to be following along, but you will have a little bit of difficulty. Starting in verse 1, it says this, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezra Hadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel... Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in the building a temple to our God alone, to, our, our, uh, to God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrated their plans during their enti the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. God, we just um, would ask that you would speak to us as we read through this text. Lord, speak into our lives. We, we believe that your word is profitable for us, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, Lord, show us, Lord, where we're wrong. Lord, show us um, where we're, we're messing up, Lord, but also teach us how to do things right through your word. And teach us about Jesus. Lord, we want Jesus to be magnified through this time. And Lord, admittedly, this is, a, a, is a, a text that has a time gap between when it happened and when Jesus walked the earth. So connect the dots for us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. And we're going to be going through this uh, fascinating text out of the book of Ezra. I have some slides that I'm going to hopefully be able to walk you through that will help you um, understand some of what's going on here. But again, I want to um, just recall um, and, and continue to remind you um, of just the context of where we're at. So Israel has just finished, Israel has just finished 70 years of captivity. So imagine being um, born into captivity, that you were born into a family where you are raised, you are told that you're a foreigner, that the people who are, run the government um, basically own you, that you're captive to them, and um, you're really, truly an Israelite from a foreign land. So many of the people that are doing chapter 4 would fall under that heading. Uh, the people that we're looking at, they lived, grew up in captivity. Just a handful of the people that are really, really old could remember kind of being taken out of Jerusalem um, before this time. So um, we've... We've seen that this is a liberated people, and they've been commissioned by the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, to build a temple. To build a temple. Why is the temple important? Why is the temple for the Jews significant? 
The reason why it's significant is because it's the, it's the central part of their worship. This is where Israel met with God. And I want you to know this about Scripture, these two things. First of all, this is 530 years before the time of Christ. So why are we reading a story that is 530 years before the time of Christ? Why is this important to us as followers of Jesus? Right? Jesus isn't even on the scene yet, but why is this key? First of all, I would say this. The Bible is a document written by people... God-inspired, but written by people telling the story of God acting in history to redeem, provide, and protect his people. Okay? That's what scripture is. It's important as you look at it, there's a lot of people that kind of want to squish the Bible into being something that it is not. It's not a technical manual on psychology. It's not a, plum, a plumbing manual on how to fix your sink, Right? This is an account that God zeroes in on one people group, right? We don't get a ton about Egypt. We don't get a ton about Assyria or about the Medo-Persian Empire. We, we run into those different groups only so that the story of God redeeming, providing, and protecting his people can be told. If you want to see more about that, look up Exodus 14 through 17 where God tells the people, write it down. Write down what has happened so that you can remember, you can remember what God has done in history. The second thing you need to know about scripture is that God invites the people in this story into a covenant relationship like a marriage. And it has rules of relationship um, so we can have an intimate relationship with him and be a people characterized by faithfulness, generosity, and justice. Okay, so if you look at all of Scripture, which we're studying this morning, what we see is that God is inviting people into this covenant relationship. So these very people who are having to make this decision in verses 1 through 5 about these foreigners that come and say, we want to build with you, those people are in a covenant relationship with God. But God isn't just about covenant with Israel. Now... Beyond Jesus, there's this open covenant where anybody who's ever been born can interact with God. We call that the new covenant. All right. So having this in mind, that God is, is inviting people into covenant relationship where there's rules in relationship so that there's intimacy, right? And then where a people characterized by faithfulness, generosity, and justice. Let's look into this particular chapter together. We, um, let me point out a few things, a few things from verses 1 through 5. We're told that 14 months after the people arrive in Jerusalem, they begin a construction project. So anybody here done construction projects? We have a few, okay? Swung a hammer, yeah? Okay, so you can relate to these people. They are 14 months into their construction project, and the place of the construction project where they're at is they've laid the foundation. Now, I've only done one construction project in my life, and it was very irritating how long it took to lay the foundation. I was so frustrated that we had to get the protract, like the, um, the thing where you look and you've got to measure, and there's depths, and all of the, like the wires that go out, and you're going to pour the foundation. It's just... Oh, let's just build the thing already, right? 
<laughs> That's how I was. When it, so I wouldn't be a good construction guy. <laughs> I'm just too impatient. But they've gotten to the point where they laid the foundation, and at the end of chapter 3, they have a party, right? They're all excited, and they're yelling and shouting. And then the old guys are weeping and upset because the, it isn't going to be as big as the old one, right? So it's just this big, loud mess. We start off in verse um, 1, where the enemies of Judah and Benjamin hear... That's the repeated word that was in the preceding verse, because there was no chapter break in there originally. They hear that the foundation is being laid. And they come to Zerubbabel and Joshua and the leaders, and they say, we want to help build the temple with you. We want to participate in the process. And the leaders decide, they say, no, we want to uh, reject that offer. We want to exclude you from being a part of the process. Um, and then in verse 5, it says that they became antagonistic. They bribe other people to interfere. They're slandering. They're discouraging them. And the summary statement is that building of the temple stopped until the year of Darius, which is uh, we jump a king, uh, a king um, who's not even mentioned in the text anywhere. He's going to be the third king in the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, so... In who are these foreign residents, right? These enemies, we're told in verse 1. Who are these enemies of Judah? Well, in verse 2, they say who they are. Who do they say? Look in your text. Look in the text in front of you. Who do they say that they are in verse 2? They say that they were at the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, brought us here. Well, what's that referring to? Well, you remember that the northern tribes of Israel were carried off by the Assyrian uh, kingdom up north. And uh, so Israel was taken out, but the Assyrian kingdom relocated other people in to Israel, into this area. And that's who's being referred to, Esarhaddon, does this work of relocating new people, foreigners, into the land. Then in verse 10 and 17, which we haven't gotten to, um, in their letter writing, they say that they are people of Samaria. Have you ever heard of Samaria? You ever heard of the good Samaritan or the woman by the well who was a Samaritan woman? Same group of people. We're getting there, right? So these people are what we would call Samaritans. I want to show you a text that's very interesting, another piece of history from 2 Kings 17, 24 through 34. I've edited this a bit because there's a lot of repetition in here, but it tells the story of when these people that we encounter in verse 1 are moved into the region of Samaria. It says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and they lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. Verse 27. 
Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the custom of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persisted in their former practices. They neither worshipped the Lord nor adhered to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel." Fascinating, isn't it? So this is how we get the Samaritans. They are an amalgam. What's an amalgam, right? You take two metals, you mix them together, we end up with steel or something like that, right? I, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> they are taking Judaism and then their own religious beliefs and mixing it together, right? And now, and so this people, this this group of people is living around Jerusalem. They see the temple being built, and they say, hey, we want in on what's going on. The Jews, all the way up to Jesus' time, considered them a half-breed and did not want to associate with them. So this causes us, like if we want to just follow this people group all the way through, we go from the story of Ezra... So I know your, your book of the Bible. Like, so if you're holding Ezra and you're looking at it in your Bible, it's before Psalms. And then you go into the prophets. But technically, when we're looking at the history of Israel, we're near the end. We're, we're going into the kind of the dark ages of Israel. And we have this big gap, 400-year gap, right until then, we, then Jesus kind of comes onto the scene. So this is late in Israel's history. And... The next thing that happens with the Samaritans is this John 4 encounter where Jesus interacts with the woman on the well. Now, I'm giving you, I, I, I may be delivering the sermon in the wrong way. I, I'm giving you a bunch of information, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of assess it, right? We're doing um, graduate-level work on this text together because I know you guys are all my seminary students. You all are sharp. You got this. You're going to track with me, but I know you will. But in John chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then look at the parentheses. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Huh, I wonder where they got that idea from. Interesting. Verse 19, we jump further into chapter 4. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where, you, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father 
neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, interesting, interesting interaction that goes on between these two individuals. I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus initiates this interaction with the woman. Fascinating, right? Okay. She knows culturally, what does she say? She says, the Jews and the Samaritans do not mix. Uh, culturally, the Samaritan woman knew that the Jewish, that the Jewish claim to Jerusalem was the proper place for worship. So she knew enough to know that there was a difference of opinion on where the right location for worship was. So what's going on in John chapter 4, and, and by the way, do you know that last week we were in John 4? Do you remember that? We referenced John 4, la, 4 last week as well, which I, 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 I'm realizing as I'm studying this book is that John 4 and this encounter with this woman is a really important um, interpretive key to the book of Ezra. I can't promise that we'll return to it again, but there's a very fascinating interplay between the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus' interaction or, and um, the story of Ezra and what we're looking at today. Now, one of the things that we're accomplishing by going through the book of Ezra, a historic book, is that we're becoming more biblically literate. So that when you go and you study John 4 in your quiet times and you're there reading the Bible, you have a greater appreciation for this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because you're like, oh yeah, I read that story back in Ezra. Okay, now we're going to get into the deep end of the pool. Um, here's the question. Were... Zerubbabel and Joshua right to reject the help of the Samaritans? Were they, were they right to reject the help of the Samaritans? Now, if you've been in the church for a long time or you've read commentaries on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is likely that you've heard sermons where Ezra and Nehemiah are held up as champions and oftentimes they're examples of leaders. Sometimes churches will teach from the book of Nehemiah when they're doing a building campaign. You know, Nehemiah, he rallied the troops and we built the building, you know, and this is what we need to do. There is a... Um, newer school of thought on Ezra and Nehemiah that is more critical of the decision-making process of both Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. These commentators suggest that Ezra and Nehemiah give an account that falls into the motif of Israel's failure to live as God's covenant people. God rescues his people. He brings them back from Babylon to build the temple, but then they fail to demonstrate God's benevolent love for their neighbors. Do you remember, going back to Jesus really quickly, do you remember there's one other reference to Samaritans? Do you remember where it comes up? It's a parable. Because a lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, um, what's the greatest commandment? And um, Jesus kind of puts it back on him. What do you say? And he says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then the lawyer kind of wants to get out from the heavy burden of that. And he says, well, clarify for me, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells a parable, and in it, the champion, the hero of the story, is a Samaritan who was good. He's a good Samaritan. He cares for the guy who got assaulted, right? Aggravated assault on the road to Jericho. Sounds like Baltimore. (laughs) So... So God chose the nation of Israel to be his people and to demonstrate his covenant with the nations. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? I am going to bless you, Abraham, and make of you a great nation so that you will bless many people. Right? So the glory of God shines out of Israel to the nations, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, all of these prophets are saying you are a light to the nations. And yet here we come onto the scene and the nations come and they say we want to help you build. Let us be a part of the building process. And they say, no, 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 we're supposed to do this by ourselves. And so you have this new school of thought that says they made a mistake at this point. They should have allowed because look they bought timber from Tyre and Sidon right they're including other people there when Cyrus made the decree and sent them back to build the temple he said you Jews are supposed to go home and hey anybody who has neighbors that happen to be Jewish why don't you give them an offering a a, a contribution to this building project so other people have already been involved and then we come into Jesus and we see Jesus having such positive interactions with the Samaritans you kind of get a sense and then there's kind of the to 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 make the best case, um, when you go to Zechariah, the prophet who we'll we'll really dig into next week, Zechariah says, you're supposed to build this temple with people from faraway lands. So there's a real strong case to be made that this was a wrong decision. But you look at the story of 1 Kings or 2 Kings 17, that these are, these are, um, have this mixed idol worship, that they're pagans, you know the history of Israel, that the big downfall, the reason they've been for 70 years in captivity is because they were, they were worshiping idols and they had left serving God. So, so you can understand why these people wanted to be really careful about involving pagans in the building of their temple, right? Here's the thing. You knew I was going to somehow land this with motherhood, right? You feel the tension? You feel the tension? Like, 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 did they make the right decision? Did they make the wrong decision? I don't know. I don't know. I, I could see it either way. But let me, let me just say this. Is there any leadership position in society where a person is second-guessed more than that of a mother? Is there? Is it possible that, a mo- that moms are the most second-guessed leaders in our society? I think this is a, a major source of anxiety for moms. Did I do the right thing with my, my kids? Was I too mean? Was I too strict? Was I not strict enough? Who knows? I'm not, we, we have this phrase in our culture. It's called being an ar- armchair quarterback or being a backseat driver, right? Or second guessing somebody. 
right? I'm not a big fan of that, right? We, we use those terms armchair quarterback kind of in derision. Yeah, anybody can be an armchair quarterback, you know? Anybody can um, drive the car from the back seat. If that's easy, right? <laughs> it's hard to be a mom, right? And so we don't know. We don't know whether these guys made the right decision or the wrong decision, but I, I've got to show you something beautiful. I'm cheating because we're getting into next week's material. But let me, let, me, let me show you this. Let me show you this. This is Zechariah. So God, God brings men, two men, Haggai and Zechariah, to prophesy to Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest in the midst of this whole thing. And a prophet speaks on behalf of God, just saying, this is the truth. This is my truth. And look at this in Zechariah 3. Look what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Right? So this is a supernatural vision that Zechariah has of like a real person, but with spiritual things going on around him. And Satan standing at his right side, accusing him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning sna uh, stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Whether... Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, and these other leaders made the right decision or not. God gives a prophet a vision of this man being accused by Satan. And what role does God play? Is God the accuser? No, God's the defender. God's the one who's saying, Joshua is my man. Satan, the Lord rebuke you. God is your advocate. For all of you, moms, and all, for all of us, God is our advocate. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are one who has been given new clothes, clean clothes, and you are not a person condemned. And maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe there are things you regret in how you've worked with your kids or in your workplace or how you've led. But this is the truth of Scripture is that God is your advocate. There's a question in Romans 8. Who condemns us? Is it Christ? No, he's the one who was sacrificed on your behalf. That's what Paul says. Jesus is for you. You do not have to wear the judginess, the judginess of other people. Well, wouldn't you know it, we've only done the first five verses out of 24. But we're going to continue on. We're going to continue on. Um, verses 6 through 23. Verses 6 through 23. Here's a um, timeline, okay? So what's going on in the rest of chapter 4 is that we have a digression. Um, we have a, uh, we step out of the immediate story of a 
conflict with the Samaritans, and we have a 70-year summary of the ongoing conflict of the Samaritans with the Jews. And it goes through these four, really there's five seasons. These are the different um, emperors. You have Cyrus, and then you have uh, Emperor Darius, then Xerxes and Artaxerxes, okay? So literally what we're going to cover in history is um, some things that refer to the time of uh, Nehemiah, and not even t things that are going on in the book of Ezra. You'll notice also here on the timeline that we have letter number one, letter number two, letter number three, and letter number four. There's three arrows going up because these are local people writing letters to the kings. And then we have the final letter from Artaxerxes that is letter number four. And it is being sent back to the people. So let's go through this together. Starting in verse 6, this is letter number 1. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Already, we've jumped out of the time frame of Ezra, the book of Ezra. Okay, that's letter number 1. Then we have letter number 2. And in the days of Artaxerxes, which was the son of Xerxes... King of Persia, Bishlam, Midridath, Tabeel, and the rest of the associates, they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. So that's letter two. Then we have a reference to letter number three. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, king, uh, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, the officials, the administrators, over the people from Persia, Uruk, Babylon, the Elamites, Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Asher Bernapal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. In other words, this is the third letter, and this is just who it's from. So the point is, is they're trying to say, look, this letter represents a lot of people. Have you ever been asked to, like, sign on to a letter? Like, we're going to sign a petition, basically. That's, in essence, what this letter is. So verses 8 through 10 is just who the letter's from. This is the substance of the letter, starting in verse 11. This is the copy that was sent to him, to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, in Trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer." Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to the kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. 
So it's a, it's a mixture of truth and lie. It's kind of like they have their perspective on history of what's gone on. You see that they're really kind of um, playing an angle here, a financial angle that, hey, your taxes are going to be in, in, uh, impacted if Jerusalem is raised up. So, um, and this is what the letter, response letter from King Artaxerxes said. The king sent this reply to Rahim, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made. It was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to, de- to the detriment of the royal interests? So the king Artaxerxes puts a stop work order. One of those yellow tags goes literally on the temple like stop building, right? Um, actually, this may have related to a time right before Nehemiah and some of the rebuilding that was going on there, okay? So you have four letters that are written, all of this opposition that the people of Israel are facing as they're just trying to obey God in their rebuilding process. Verse 23, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahim and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them to by force to stop. So this is way 60, 70 years down the road. In history, you understand that? Um, and it relates more to the time of Nehemiah. Let's pull out a little bit of, of um, application from this. I, I just want to make a few points here. First of all, opposition is promised to us as believers. Are, are, are you following God? You need to know that opposition is promised to the people of God. Whether the leadership made the right or wrong decision, opposition is guaranteed for those who follow God or the people of God. Second, the primary opponent of the Christian is Satan. For you and I, the primary opponent. Now, Satan may work through people, right? He may stir up people to be difficult in the process. And that's what we have going on here. But it is Satan who is backing the opposition effort. Um, there and a, f- a host of fallen angels. These evil spirits have temporary authority on earth to oppose the good work of God. And the third thing that we need to remember is that victory is promised. Jesus was sent by the Father to do a redemptive work with the ultimately leading to the overthrow of Satan's powers. The battle is currently pitched. We are watching victories of Jesus break out on a regular basis as we pray and obey. And then there's two passages up there that you can look at that relate to this idea. So here's the idea. So we're looking at this historic moment in Israel's history, and we can just immediately apply it to our life and know that the opposition they face is a reality for us as well. If you're a mom, you're going to face opposition. I'm not telling you anything new, but hopefully it's comforting to have it affirmed. 
right? Sometimes you need to hear that truth, right, that you are experiencing, that there is opposition. Your kids are not the devil, but he can sometimes inspire, inspire activity in your kids that is demonic, right? We also, just so you know, that, that a, a body is seen as a vessel, a spiritual container. If you are not a follower of Jesus, then you are a container for a spiritual work. And Satan has the ability to work in you and dwell in you. Once you become a vessel purchased by Jesus on the cross, you're off limits to Satan working and dwelling in you. The only thing that Satan can do once you be, are owned by Jesus is he can afflict you from the outside. He cannot take up residency in you. That's not allowed. So it's just really important that you understand because this week you may not be thinking about Ezra and the Samaritans, but you're going to face opposition. And it is important for you to know that Satan wants you to fail. It says in John chapter 10 that the thief who is Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's actively opposed to your fruitfulness, your love for God, and your love for others, right? So you need to be aware and on guard this week that, and know that the promise is the victory is promised and it has already been accomplished on the cross. And now we embody the outbreak of victory on the earth. Satan's still here. He hasn't been cast down yet. Satan still has authority in the world. He still has great influence. But you and I are rebels in which God is breaking out his victorious work. Are we tracking? We're on the same page here? Okay, good. Good. I, I feel that. I feel it. Okay. John 20, uh, I mean, verse 24, last little piece here, we return, we return to verse 20, uh, verse 5, okay? So this parenthetical note ends in verse 23, now we're back into our, like, modern day time where Ezra is writing, or the chronicler is writing this, it says, thus, the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That sets the stage for next week because we're going to look next week at who is Darius, how did, um, what was the interaction like with Darius. Um, it's going to be a little bit confusing, but man, we're going to love, you read Zechariah, read Haggai. Oh, good, good stuff um, that we're going to cover next week. In closing, in closing, I want to bring you back to the woman at the well, okay? Here's is Jesus in the midst of his ministry. He's tired. He's walking to the next place of ministry. And it says in John 4 that he was weary. So he sat down there at that well. And he says to this woman, he says, give me a drink. And that begins this dialogue with this woman over spiritual things. And you remember that he invites her. You, she says to her, you should be asking me for a drink because I can give you spiritual drink. You may feel like you can relate. You may feel like Ezra 4, like you're that outsider. Like, hey, I want in. I want to be a part of the building process. I want to be a part of what God's doing. And maybe your church interaction has kind of been like one of those where it's like you've gotten the stiff arm. 
I just want you to know that Jesus represents the heart of God. Jesus came to take people that are far from God, who have a mixed background and have baggage and sin and have a reputation in tatters. He came to bring those people close to God. And he's inviting those people to even come closer and receive just that. He says it's living water. Just receive. Let me pour life into you. Just like you would take a cup of water. This morning, God has the same heart of care towards you. He sent his son into the world to pay the penalty for your sin so that the spiritual longing that you have can be fulfilled in him. He wants to refresh you. He wants to pour into you life, vitality, hope, love, vision, the ability to do life, the ability to overcome the opposition. You may say, where do I start? If you're you're new to the Lord, I just want to show you this verse. In Acts 16, there was a man who was a jailer. He wanted to know where to start. And in verse 30, he said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And this is what they said. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's that simple. Believe in him. Believe in him. So, look, you, you've got stuff. We all have stuff. You walked in that door this morning. You got stuff that's super secret, that's hidden down deep. And I just want you to know that this morning, Jesus came to draw close to you. The reason that Joe is back there making egg sandwiches and Paul brought some flowers and Marvin brought flowers is because that's the outbreak of the kingdom of God's love towards you. The food that's over here that's available from Whole Foods, it's the outbreak of God's love towards you. It's the physical representation to this morning that God loves you. But he doesn't just want to fill your belly, right? He doesn't just want to give you a drink. Like the woman at the well, he wants to give you everlasting life. Everlasting life. My prayer, my prayer for you is that you would, you would just receive it, right? That you would do that it says here is just believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Jesus isn't asking you to clean up your act. He didn't ask you to put on your, your, your you know, dress to the nines or have a fancy hat to this morning. He, look, he just wanted you to come and draw close to him. He will do the work. He will meet you where you're at. You're, you're fine where you're at. The love of God is for you. You are loved. Look, Satan, Satan's like we see in Zechariah. He's accusing you. He's saying you've messed up, you've failed, your clothes are all dirty, you're a wreck, you've made bad leadership decisions, there's stuff you should regret, and the Lord is there saying, no, 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 give them clean clothes. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Amen? Lord, we thank you for being our defense, that, that we are the recipients of our love. And there are things that steal our joy. There's things that mess, mess us up. We feel accused. Um, and there's times where we've, we've messed up, where we've made bad decisions, Lord. And yet your love towards us in Christ is already accomplished. We can't go and undo the cross through our sin today. We're forgiven. 
Thank you, Lord, for that work. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you'd work in their heart, that you'd bring them to yourself. Lord, for thus, for those of us that are following you in the way of discipleship, that we want to be your followers, Lord, we just ask that you'd strengthen us this week with a resolve that we are going to hold our ground in the evil day and that we are going to be those vessels that embody the breaking out of, of heaven's victory on earth. That we're really, you're going to put stick, stick it to Satan through those victories in our life this week. Lord, put on display your great power in us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.